Welcome to another episode of the Terranet podcast. My name is Michaela Berglund and I'm leading the communications for Terranet. And one of the things I do is hosting this uh, really interesting topics that we discuss within safety, transportation, the future of mobility, etc. I'm really pleased to uh, get to speak with uh, in-depth expert of what has been happening in across the Nordics in terms of mobility, uh, Gunnar Lindberg. A warm welcome to, to this podcast and this conversation. Thank you. Uh, Gunnar, you are currently the director at uh, Nordic Mobility Research and Innovation. And previously you've worked both for uh, the Swedish, Swedish National Road Transport Research Institute, as well as recently you came from as a director for the Institute of Transport Economics in Norway. Um, what kind of directed you into this path in your career early on? I would say I, I have been interesting in interested in welfare economics from the start at the university, and that includes cost-benefit analysis and similar. Uh, things that you're doing with economic uh, tools uh, and that uh, that forced me or, or encouraged me to go to the road administration in Sweden and I was early responsible or working hard with the road planning in Sweden in cost-benefit analysis and that uh, that uh, future step the next steps after that was the European Commission that where I worked with uh, pricing Eurovignette directive uh, environmental charges and so on so I have been involved in transport economics in all my career. And then I went on to yeah, VTI, the Swedish Institute of Transport Research, and uh, later as a director of the Institute of Transport Economics in Norway. That's, That's my career uh, in short. Yeah, the, yeah and, and so much must have happened across those years. I mean, what, did you, what kind of work did you do initially in terms of calculating the price for roads and, and the cost? And the, I, I guess it was also focusing on the benefits, so to say. Um, and what has changed? The biggest change is the acceptance of pricing, I would say. Uh, when I started this work, and it was a special, special Swedish uh, turn on the transport policy with this with pricing, uh, then it was very negative attitudes against pricing in Europe. And when I was writing, I remember when I was writing the Euromunet directive or helping with writing the Euromunet directive, which was about the environmental pricing of trucks in Europe that uh, we have lorries standing outside the office <laughs> uh, complaining about our, our proposals. But now uh, people understand that you need to price, you know, you can price uh, environmental uh, issues also. So that, that's a big change in the, the discussions. And then- uh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But, but in also, cost benefit in, in investment policy, it's very similar. That, that's very little changes. I mean, you do your cost benefit analysis, you show it's negative or positive, and you have uh, some kind of influence on the development of the investment plans. But but uh, it's a lot of political influence. That that's the same, I would say. You, I know you've also been been working on um, calculating the cost of um, a life in a way. Um, 
can you describe that a little bit more? I, I, I put it out a little bit bluntly, but... Uh... Yeah, the value of statistical life. I mean, it's important to, to remember that it's the statistical life. You, you, can't, you don't have a price per kilo humans that, that, that you can't do and you shouldn't do. You, you can't do. But, but it, it's, it's a value on the risk. And if you have a risk of one, then it's, the, it's one statistical life. So that's the way it's expressed. And, and you do that kind of analysis. It has also changed during my career from having a simple calculation of uh, lost production. That has been the way and it is the way around the world in many countries. And then if you're a housewife or if you're unemployed, then your value of life, so to say, goes to zero. And it's obvious wrong. And that's why we use this cost-benefit or a willingness-to-pay approach, asking people in large studies what they are willing to pay for different uh, risk reduction measures, as a safety belt, a better equipment in the car, and so on. And you end up with they are willing to pay 2,000 Swedish crowns, $200 or something like that, for, for, a, for a small improvement in their own safety. And from that expression, you calculate back to a value of statistical life that ends up with something like... Uh, five million dollars or something like that. Mm. So then we have uh, the actual infrastructure, so like roads and how much research is going into how to set up a safe uh, infrastructure and make them safer? Well, it, it's a lot of research on different design of infrastructure on accidents, on existing infrastructure, I would say. I, if you know what I mean. I mean, you, you have a lot of statistic analysis of all the accidents in Sweden and Norway, and you make uh, regression analysis, advanced statistical analysis, and, and suggest that that kind of curve is not a good idea, maybe because you have a lot of accidents in that kind of curve and, and so on. That, that is a lot of research on. And the Institute of Transport Economics in Norway, where I was active, is one of the leading in that field. So you, you can find the accident functions, so to say, for almost anything. Uh, in that kind of research. But the next step, I would say, is more uh, less research or then you're close to the innovation part to find new ways to build the infrastructure. That is slow, a slower and less researched area. The, the mid-barrier in Sweden, it was, yeah, it was uh, people at the road administration that argued that it was a good idea and it was some kind of testing before, but it has not been coming from a, a lot of innovators to find new ways of building infrastructure, I would say. Yeah, I can imagine. It's a higher risk, isn't it? And it's, you, have, you need to, to compare a lot of different options. To It's easier to work with what you've got and researching and collecting data on what's available. Yes, yeah, but, but the difficult thing is to, to really difficult. And that is, of course, also difficult. And it's a lot of advanced research in that. But, but next step to have some kind of better thinking or designing of the infrastructure into the future. That is, uh, that could be more done in that area. And I suppose, uh, I mean, this kind of automatic vehicle is of course a, a, a part of that development. Mm. Do you see any specific country being ahead? Because I can imagine that those, I mean, for example, in Sweden, we don't have as like straight highways as they would have in the US. Uh, so I can imagine that we've got uh, data supporting our decision to do our roads the way we do it and they do it differently but if we look at like the future of infrastructure who is ahead are we tapping into the asian 
Japan, no, Singapore, uh, or uh, if they are ahead in infrastructure, I'm not sure. I mean, it's different countries. Uh, it's very specific countries: Sweden, Norway, uh, and part of US and Canada. Also, of course, it's very much land and very little people, if you say so. And if you have that ratio between land and people, the infrastructure becomes very expensive compared to the vehicles, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, and if you're then going to invest in, in, into the future in infrastructure or in transport systems, then it's in, in a country like Sweden and Norway, it would be cheaper to go for more technology in the car, I would guess. To have more advanced car on a simpler infrastructure. Because mm-hmm. it's very, I mean, I'm sitting I, I, sitting now in north of Sweden and I have a two-lane road outside here and it, it's the, the snow plow has come two times this morning, but I have seen maybe two cars on the road. Mm. Two <laughs> cars. I mean, and someone has to pay for that. And if you could have the cars more smart, smarter, those two cars smarter compared to the 200 kilometers to the next big city here, it would be much cheaper. So that's maybe maybe different developments. So if you talk about Southeast Asia, they have a lot of, lot of people in little land. They can have very advanced infrastructure because that, that's, that's, that's cheaper for them. But if you go to a country like Sweden and Norway with, with little people and much land, you need to go for more investment in smart vehicles, mm, I would say. Interesting, yeah. Um, so we are now tapping into like trends onwards and in infrastructure in the next 10 to 20 years and I can imagine that it, it you know the investment is different due to the reasons you mentioned uh, what would you say are like major trends uh, in what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years and I, I assume autonomy is one of them autonomy is one of them well, let, let me start from the challenges I mean autonomy is, is the answer on a challenge, I would say. I mean, yes, it's technology, it's developed by technology, but to have the society to adopt the technology, it has to be an answer to a challenge, otherwise it's meaningless. And if you start in that direction, uh, you have a few challenges, I think the infrastructure need to answer into the future. Climate change, of course, that, that's obvious. You see the electrification, uh, if it's battery or fuel cells, I mean, in the, Nowadays, it's, it looks like batteries are going to win that race, but, but it will be some kind of electrification. You need to see more resilient infrastructure, redundant, plan for more redundance. I believe that will be more important in the future. I mean, if you have the, what was the name of the ship in the Swiss Canal, Evergreen or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're dependent on one single spot in the infrastructure system, then you're in trouble if you have climate change. So that will be some kind of uh, change into the future. And I say, okay, you have the urban development, the, the urban growth. It's also in Sweden and Norway is growing. The Oslo and Stockholm and Gothenburg areas are growing strongly. And then, then you always will have running into congestion problem. And uh, for me, as, as I told you, my career is it had a clue, both, both planning and pricing. So for congestion, you need to, to have some idea of pricing the, the congestion problem into the future. That would be a strong development. That's political sensitive. You need to find a governance model that, that works. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to do it. Maybe Singapore has a good idea, but uh, you, you need to, to- Why do you mention Singapore? 
Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, congestion. I mean, if you remember Sweden or Gothenburg or Oslo, it's a lot of political discussions or decisions to have a, a road price. And it's politically decided on the level, up and down on the, on the, the highest price. In Singapore, well, Singapore is not a democracy in the same way as Sweden and Norway, of course, you, you can, that you can argue. But they have a system where the road administration or a road authority has the right to set the price. Uh, but the goal for this system is the speed of the vehicle. I'm not sure if the speed is the right. So you have, if you have cars running into Singapore and the speed is going down, then they have the right to turn on the price. And then mm. when the speed is going up, everything going up, they can, they can turn the price down again. So it's more, more flexible and more decentralized pricing system. Of course, you need a government model that you believe in this, this system, that you can trust them. But otherwise, it's more flexible. Because now, when we go into investments in urban areas, especially in motorways and so on, it's for very peak hour capacity needs. But if you can distribute that peak hour a little bit better, then you can save a lot of investments. Mm. But uh, yeah, that, that's something I believe need to, need to come into the future, uh, some kind of better restrictions on access in, in urban areas. Yeah, it's, maybe this is a random question, but I, I was just thinking, like, if, do we continue to move more into the cities or do one see any sort of trend of people wanting to move out of the city again? I think Corona and COVID has kind of pushed people out to the country little bit more but their overall trend is it like only urbanization or what what do you see that's uh, I, yes i think it's urbanization i mean it's a difficult question yes as i said corona has made the possible for people like me for example for the same for this moment i'm sitting in north of sweden in the middle of nowhere uh, although i have high speed internet connection um, everywhere so i can talk with you i can talk with listeners to the pod from this place but that it's not a place where you can develop i would say it, it's need I, I i have problems to see that you as a family can have a advanced work, work life too far away from a big cities you need the women and the man need to have a good job and you need to change now and then and then you need more people around you so i also mm. even if i like to to live in to stay in this kind of areas, it's not possible to develop uh, fast enough, I, I think, as a human in this area. So you say people will move still, I, I believe, into cities, although it will be more of a, these video conversations. Mm. Yeah, I, I think so too. And uh, so in that aspect, uh, more money is going to be invested into the urban cities. Then if we look, look at... Um, the, the changes um, in in our cities uh, in terms of safety, uh, what has happened? Uh, if you look only in cities, but also if you look at traffic safety, it's an it's a amazing uh, success story, especially in the US and Europe, but it's coming all over the world. And it has, as our research is showing its three components, you have much better cars, or, I mean, if you started in the 60s, or in Sweden and in the 70s, you started to have better cars, better infrastructure, and better drivers. Those two components has increased the safety incredibly much. 
uh, during this time. And then, then you have the urban areas. These street, street trends has affected the safety in urban areas also. But next step, I would guess it's more... Well, you, you have used a lot of more separation, of course. And that's... A, I would question if that is the future. I mean, you, you have separated car from pedestrians from bicyclists. That, that has been a trend. And that has mm. been increased the safety. Uh, but it has a limit, the safety effect of that. When and I was even to... thinking like electrical scooters, etc., ha- has been flooding our cities uh, in recent years. And that has, I guess, you know, put another pressure on reinventing safety. Yes, yeah, maybe. Yeah, separation is not working anymore, I would say, with this kind of mixed vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I believe you will have a trend towards lower speed in cities, much lower speed. I mean, 50 kilometers per hour is killing. Uh, it's easy to ki- people to get killed of. If you get down to, to 30 or something like that in cities, you can, uh, you can have more safety, more mixed traffic. Mm. Oh, interesting. I, I, I would say that, that you, in your industry or, or automatic, automatic vehicles, you will never have a, a bus, oh, never. I will say it will take a decade, decade before you are running an autonomous bus in uh, 50 km per hour in the urban areas in decent speed. You will need to reduce the speed. So this industry will also be interesting to have lower speed in urban areas because if you go down the speed, you can mix it with autonomous vehicles in a much better way than you than can today. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because as I say, when like a train, for example, going on a rail, it's quite easy to, to control the direction of the of the vehicle, uh, so it's easier to increase the speed. But with autonomy, a vehicle should be able to go wherever, and with that, anything could happen surrounding it. And that's why I, I'm obviously working for the for Ternet, and we have got a really interesting uh, technology. Uh, there are specifically developed for urban areas and we, we call it Voxaflow and um, we see um, that with a higher speed in reaction time so we are talking about five milliseconds actually detecting and and um, predicting where an object is moving uh, and it's uh, compared to today today's system it's uh, around almost 100 times faster um, than today's ADA systems because the different sensors, if it's cameras or uh, laser lidars or radar, they need to communicate with each other to to give enough intelligence to assist a vehicle in making a decision. Um, and our system can combine those two in a way, uh, which I think is really interesting because we see that we can actually break going fifty kilometers per hour. We could actually break um, and react and potentially like save a, a kid. 10 meters ahead and so we see but I think it's another really interesting perspective is the one you bring up in terms of we also need to decrease this the speed to really ensure safety yes I mean if if you have this uh, well you have the technology and and I know it's it's coming and I know it's running and the tests we have we have been doing and it's always something surprising happening in those uh, those tests, but but it's working, yes. But then, if 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 I go back to my earlier research on value of statistical life, then you have a willingness to pay for these parents of the kid, even if you if they know that the vehicle coming are going to stop with ninety nine percent certainty uh, when when the kid is out on the street. 
they have a high willingness to pay to reduce the speed, I believe, on this vehicle to reduce the risk further. So I, I think that, yes, it may be sometimes, in, but it, it would take many decades, I would say, before you accept the high speed of autonomous vehicle in mixed traffic. Mm. Or in, in this but yeah, and I also, like, if you look at the autonomous pods or vehicles at the moment, they they are super slow. So we, I think a combination of um, actually going up to to, to make the, the, the transportation more efficient, but without um, compromising with, the, with security and safety for, for the people in and around the, the vehicle, I think is, I think you're, um, I agree with you uh, in that re- regard, actually. Yeah, it, it's a balance but between speed. Mm. I mean, it, between speed and safety, and both those values—value time and value safety—if you're an economist, uh, I mean, the day has 24 hours. It has had been 24 hours per day since the Viking Age or earlier. It's always 24 hours, and you can't have more time as a human because it's the end of your life. So you have one life. And 24 hours per, per day. And th- th- these are restricted. We uh, restricted things that will grow in, in value. The value of time will grow and the value of safety will grow in the future as your income increases. But those two commodities, your life and time, we can't grow anymore. It's a limit on that. And that means you're, you need higher speed and you need more safety. And higher speed, yes, well, you don't need higher speed, you need more time. And that mm. you can solve with, with automatic vehicles, of course. If you don't need to drive anymore, then you save a lot of time. So mm. that's two, two trends that, for me, is forced by economic reality. Uh, zero accidents and, and automatic vehicles. And that's, that's driving the automatic vehicle industry for me. Mm. Um, so if we look at um, the dialogue between uh, car manufacturers and um, you know, transportation institutes or the inf- building the infrastructure, who, what, who has what responsibility and where are those crossing? Uh, the, in- the industry, uh, the car manufacturers and the infrastructure owners, the, the responsibility, well, I recall, I mean, I mean, as I've been working in Norway for a long time, uh, the infrastructure provider or the, the government has had tax incentives putting in the right place. That's the role for the government. And it has been, I mean, uh, Norway is a success story in electric vehicles. It's, it's the, the champion in that race. And that, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the incentives and the policy has been there for decades before it was even discussed in, in the world about electric vehicles. And uh, that has to be the internal uh, ideas in Norway to, to try to start a, a vehicle <laughs> industry. And then they thought that good, poli- good policies could, could give a market for electric vehicle industry, but it, it failed. But you still had a policy and suddenly, I mean, it was, you had the same policy for decades and suddenly the industry response, responded. Uh, so the, the, the Tesla, the Nissan Leaf was coming and then the market exploded when the policy was the right, in the right place. So I, the, uh, yeah, so, so it's important for, for, the, for the government or for the infrastructure owner to have the right incentives. And then it's a question for the market to deliver the, the product and they will do it. And maybe the car, the Swedish car manufacturers and the, has been slower in the electric 
vehicle race than others, but they will de deliver electric vehicles that will run on our, our roads if the policy is right. So that, but the big question I would say, the difficult question is the ITS, the, the, the digital infrastructure that you may need or may not need for running these autonomous vehicles. I mean, in urban areas, you obviously need it, but I mean, that will take a long time. And I, I am not so optimistic about this interlinkage between the car and the infrastructure that you have to have a system that talks with it under yes, but it takes a long time to develop. And I believe it will take a long time that some of your, the car manufacturers and the, your type of technology will run ahead and try to develop something that's better than what, they, than what you can offer with a system that needs the infrastructure providers uh, technology. I'm not, sure, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is right, but I'm afraid that, that the infrastructure provider is too slow. They are too slow to develop this technology. Mm, so innovation has to spur from businesses. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. And that makes a problem when you come to infrastructure. I mean, the, the roads, and the, because that, that government uh, investments all over the world almost. So you can change that government mod governance model of the road infrastructure, but uh, that, that's a big question. Mm. So now, you know, I believe in the, in the, uh, that the vehicle manufacturers need to will be running this uh, uh, this technology race. I mean, one example I have: I, I was in a in a public transport company I, I worked in, uh, and they have had a uh, zero accident policy, vision zero policy. Yes, we have a vision zero policy. Happy with that. And then I asked, "What are you doing with the vision zero policy as a?" as a public transport operator. Well, it's not our responsibility, it's the government that sets the policy for the vehicles and so on. But when, when we challenged them a bit, they started to purchase to the demand or pay more for safe buses. And suddenly the market responded with better buses for the driver. The, the driver of the bus is sitting in the front of it and it's really poor working environment around the driver, the bus driver for the old, in the old bus anyway. And then they started to produce these new buses. So when you put the right incentives, the market uh, developed the, the right thing. Mm. Interesting. So um, further discussing then uh, what's going to happen in, in the future, what do you see um, further as in, interesting thoughts on, on the, the future of mobility in our cities? Well, I, as I started, I believe more of zones of low speed, low speed mixed traffic in some in in, in big areas of of the cities where you have walking and cyclists and and mixed uh, autonomous vehicles, more green cities if if you would like to call it that, uh, and try to get rid of the the motorways into the city centers. That I, yeah. I think people will. Maybe that's the change of the of the of the corona also. I mean, you're moving out of the city, but when you're moving back in the city, you, you want to have a better better environment to live in. So that's that's a change, I would say. What or about? Um, I was thinking about like it would make sense for us to actually start with smaller pods, etc. But from uh, from both the OEMs, then the the cars that they get. Um, the electrical cars that they actually earn more the most money from it, that's um, 
that's uh, SUVs, so <laughs> bigger cars in a way. And when other people buy large vehicles, we tend to do the same because otherwise you, you don't want to drive around having the small car when everyone else has a big one uh, because it's not safe. <laughs> so um, uh, what do you see in that respect um, and the possible transformation of electro electrical vehicles? Um, what will happen? That they, well, yeah, the, the, what the example you take, I remember from my own research that we did for, for Swedish data, and I don't know, I think it was 1,300 Swedish crowns per 100 kilo vehicle extra, you say for yourself in, in a risk uh, valuation to buy mm. a heavy vehicle, you impose a, an accident on the, your other, the traffic around you, and you say, say you become safer yourself. So that's a question for tax system uh, or pricing system. And uh, we have been making experience with that trying try that type of pricing system. So you, you force the, the vehicle fleet to the same weight, more or less. Uh, well, if you will have bigger vehicles, I, I mean, you're maybe more in that than I am, but isn't that the safety development, uh, do you need the weight of the vehicle to survive now? Or can you have it with more smarter things that you can use when you have an accident? Like kind of, yeah, airbag, of course, is the obvious example, but uh, that you develop other technology that you don't need to run around in ordinary traffic with a heavy vehicle uh, and get and lose a lot of energy on driving around with that vehicle. And suddenly when you have an accident, you uh, you need, it's only then you need the weight. Uh, but you mean that electric vehicles are heavier. We don't see any effect of electric vehicles on the accident rates so far that you are, have more accidents. Mm. No, it's, um, mm. uh, and I think no matter what, like it, it definitely makes sense to reduce the large vehicles in the cities to, um, I mean, ensure we have more space, not don't have to use it for parking or, uh, yeah. and actually making the, the, the usage of vehicles more efficient so it's, they're not like just park blocking the street and 95 percent of the day um so uh from that respect and from a sustainability perspective it's definitely a no-brainer but um, um people sometimes work with um yeah they are what they are well, it's, it's a combination of prestige and you know feeling safe and cool belonging to others etc that's and also i think you know the profits the margins from the car manufacturers yeah uh, that's kind of deciding at least what we see as in the short term as a trend uh, but i'm also thinking um interestingly uh, I think it, it would it would be really good if we could go down to like urban areas if one could have like for example 40 kilometers per hour um, and also use the innovation new technology to to improve um, the reaction time and the intelligence of the vehicle um, to, so you kind of work on the safety aspects from both sides I think definitely that that, that makes sense. Yeah, about so yeah, it, it makes sense. And and but of and, and we you can and, and I sometimes think and it's maybe my own fault that I haven't marketed that idea more. <laughs> you you have uh, the tax incentives are very strong on vehicles, especially in Norway. It's extremely strong uh, tax incentives for electric vehicles now. Uh, 
or, or non-electric vehicles are, are taxed very, very high. And it's the same in Sweden. It's the same coming around uh, the world, of course, that you want electric vehicles. But but now you use a lot of tax money, or, or you, that's maybe not important, but you need to use a lot of incentives to renew the vehicle park. I mean, a mm. vehicle is living for... A, 13 years or 20 years or something like that, 15 years. Uh, but now you use a lot of incentives to get rid of the fossil-driven vehicles and have more electric vehicles. And that's, a, I mean, you should have used that incentives also to force down the size and, in, and improve and have the more smart cars. I mean, have your technology into the vehicles now because you will end up with the electric vehicle park with these incentives, and they will live for, we don't know, but they will live for 10 or 50 or 20 years, that park. And then we have not forced in or helped that, that the new vehicle park with new technology. We could have done that now. So you buy, uh, well, Tesla is a bad example, maybe they are rather advanced also, but you can have a more advanced vehicle on the roads and that will save life. It will have more safety in the long run, so to say. And my dream is, of course, that it will be more more technology, uh, not in urban areas, but in, in rural areas, that is a large part of the Swedish infrastructure, that you can have much cheaper infrastructure investments, lower infrastructure investments, if you have much smarter vehicles uh, on the roads that don't need two lanes with snowplow every hour or something like that. Mm. So, I think it's missed missed opportunity. So, what's uh, well, yeah? What sort of what sort of intelligence do you, do you mean that those um in the rural areas they would need you would need more vehicles i mean you would in principle need a whole vehicle park a car park that's smart mm. then i mean if you have that this uh, advanced technology that you, you stop a break when you have a vehicle uh, near you and so on all the time and if everyone has that if you know that everyone has that then you don't need only this kind of road outside my window you maybe can survive with one lane road with, with parking spots if you know that the other vehicle is coming, and, and uh, if, if everyone is equipped like that, then you can mm. save a lot of money. I mean, it's a half the price for, well, not the half the price for road because it's a, it's a lot of fixed cost, but it's a half the price for driving the snowplow every day. If you have a one lane road that with smart vehicle can have meeting spots every kilometer or something like that. Mm, interesting. Hey, I really enjoyed talking to you, Gunnar. Uh, so much knowledge and uh, uh, really interesting. I, I learned a lot and I hope that you as listener uh, picked up some new thoughts and that this um, sparked your brain uh, cells as well to think more about what's going to happen in the future. And for sure, we at Turnit would like to be a part of it. Uh, but um, uh, it's a lot of exciting things happening uh, and innovation. Uh, so thank you Gunnar uh, and uh, wish you a good day and we are back in the next month with a new episode of the podcast and then we're going to focus on safety from a from a bike perspective talking with the Hövding uh, founder and inventor thank you Gunnar and have a really good day (laughs) 